Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Wednesday morning, the 11th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The war in Ukraine has resulted in about 75,000 refugees arriving to this country in addition to the many thousands of others coming here from elsewhere seeking international protection. Accommodation is not the only challenge, but it is the biggest challenge as most people in this country put their shoulder to the wheel, hoping to do whatever possible to give sanctuary to so many people in this, their time of need. Unfortunately and embarrassingly, a sinister right-wing movement has been spreading lies and hatred on the internet about refugees. Most people dismiss their vile slogans such as Ireland for the the Irish or the latest hashtag Ireland is full. Most people acknowledge it's just right-wing propaganda. Disturbingly, though, there has been some protests in some communities where refugees and asylum seekers have been housed. Let's speak now to Lucky Cambola, who's the co-founder of Massey. That's the movement of asylum seekers in Ireland. And a very good morning to you, Lucky, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Would you agree that where local residents have been protesting in East Wall or in Ballymun, for that matter, it's because of this right-wing, racist lies and nonsense that they've been hearing on the internet. Oh yes, uh, no doubt about it. We are very much aware of that and uh, what, that is what the message we are also giving to the international protection applicants, especially the new ones, to let them know that this is not the island that we know. I'm here 10 years and I've never seen something like this and I know uh, of the, uh, the, way, the, the movement that the far-right is is pushing on this we are getting calls we are getting emails from them for supporting the the, the international protection applicants and uh yeah it, it's just so unfortunate that they are painting this bad picture uh about island uh of uh of not welcoming uh people in here mm. uh, protesting everywhere that they they you know the, it's worse. The worst. The worst thing with uh, the the Palimun uh, uh, the area that that place has been operation for more than a year. Yeah. And and nothing has happened, and uh, it does not affect anyone that is living there. There are people that are already working, uh, who stay there. Working people, they leave their place and go to work and come back, 
and they work in, in, in places where they take care of the very Irish people in healthcare mm. uh, 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 homes. Mm. You know? Yeah, well, it's a very vocal minority uh, who are giving out, if you want, uh, who are spreading this venom. But the vast majority of people in this country don't agree with what they're saying, let alone the tactics that they're using. Oh, yes, yes. And it's, 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 uh, it's much welcome to hear that voice uh, uh, of the, the welcoming people of Ireland that come out to say that we do not agree with this. We want to, to stage a peaceful uh, demonstration to show solidarity mm. with people that are coming seeking refuge here in this country. Mm. It's much welcome to hear such uh, a voice, of which we know. Yeah. And of course, you know. of course, there's a lot of people who have a, a lot of questions. Uh, we're facing uh, the biggest challenge in terms of immigration in this country in the history of uh, the state. Uh, uh, it's unprecedented uh, for so many people to come at once and it, it causes uh, a lot of challenges and, of course, begs a lot of questions. And there's a lot of people who have a, a lot of questions and that's understandable too. Oh, yes, it is understandable. It's, uh, it's, it's unprecedented times and it has never happened before. And uh, it also gives an opportunity uh, to, to, to try and, and, and proactively uh, put uh, ways, uh, things in place to, to, to respond. Because last year it was the highest. What will happen if this number does not it decrease this year. If it increases, what will be the response? And it can't be send yeah. them uh, send them away. It it means that we need to 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 look into what is it that we can do better to respond uh, 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 with uh, with uh, with great humanity to people that seek refuge. Okay. Well, there's going to be of, even there's going to be even greater challenges. It would seem uh, over the course of this year, the government is meeting this morning, Lucky, and uh, the Minister for Integration, Roderick O'Gorman, is going to tell the ministers about his concern going into the spring, March, April time, when the tourist industry reopens again, because it's expected that the hotels, B&Bs and so on, are, are going to want to reopen to tourism which means there's a problem and a very significant problem because there's 14,000 refugees staying in the hotels uh, and such like uh, at the moment. So uh, we're going to have to find accommodation for people somewhere else when that happens. Oh, yes. Uh, I, I remember last year that they used, uh, because of the schools being closed, they used a lot of schools for, uh, for about two months mm. uh, to, to house people that were new in the country at that time. So, uh, which was something that uh, I mean was not conducive for for any for any person to be to be living in school halls uh, for 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 some for for any period. Mm. So, yeah, something needs to be done to proactively think about what is it uh, that uh, we can respond to, uh, and 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 also to be seen to be given that humanitarian. Uh, help that is needed by people. Okay, I've I've seen a lot of these far-right groups, uh, the representatives on uh, the internet talking uh, about immigrants coming into this country, people seeking international protection, and they all seem to have the same uh, approach, they all seem to be saying the same things, and then you end up hearing ordinary people in Ballymun or Eastwall repeating what they're saying, 
uh, and they, uh, I suppose, they tell their story well, don't they? Uh, I mean, if you were uh, to look on it objectively, you, you'd say that they're making their arguments well because they do yeah. every, they do everything in their power not to appear to be racist. They say, oh, we accept genuine refugees, yeah. uh, which seems uh, to indicate or makes people think, well, maybe some of the refugees aren't genuine. Yeah. And you tell me, how do you determine a person that just arrived in the country that they are not genuine? Yeah. You know? And if they've come uh, from war, that you stand outside and tell them to go home and act in a, a very threatening, Nazi-like, intimidating way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and people, I mean, uh, what they are not t- telling people is that a person that has presented himself or herself as an international protection applicant, that person becomes legal in that country under the, 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 the uh, 2015 International Protection Act. They are under that umbrella. Mm. So they are legal here. Mm. They need to follow that legal process. Nobody can deprive that person of that legal requirement for them to be assessed. And it, uh, it, it, it is something that is, is it's a global thing, UN, EU, Mm. It's expected that the country responds to the crisis that is happening globally. Oh yeah, there's an, there's an international there's an international obligation on, on Ireland to, to uh, accept people and uh, to uh, deport them. Then, if they're not genuine refugees, and I'm sure yeah. you'll agree, lucky that you're always going to get that. But the vast majority of people who are coming here are genuinely seeking refuge, and they're, they're fleeing from desperate, desperate situations. But I just wanted to talk that through to you because this is what people are hearing on the internet and then the other thing that they're hearing on the internet is well why are they men if they're coming here why are there so many men coming here and large groups of men going to different centres what do you say to that argument well uh, you can't you can't preempt or uh, predetermine as to who must come in the country and anyone that 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 is fleeing uh, uh, and seek for 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 refuge uh, if it's men, then so so be it. Nobody can say why. Why are, are, are men? Mm. So it it depends what what is it that they are facing that they are running away from, mm. you know. Uh, and if men also need to be to need to be taken care, need to be looked looked after. Yes. Okay. Because of the fact that they are men, and then people think that they they must be strong and they must not uh, uh, be protected, and then they put into the worst uh, situations. And also men do mm. suffer mental health. Yeah, of course they do, especially when they're coming from these areas. And I also hear these fellas, these right-wing fascists on the internet talking about them being of military age. Uh, I quite often describe uh, the people who make these statements as the big mouths and the layabouts. And I don't think any of them would be joining the army very soon, let alone insisting that somebody they know absolutely nothing about should be joining the army or asking why yeah. they're here if there's a war going on and they should be in military service. Oh, exactly. Exactly. That's not a point of argument at all. It's just show the ignorance that uh, the people have. Well, that's it. About- there's, an, there's an awful lot of ignorance. Uh, the big mouths and the layabouts have an awful lot to say and they don't have an awful lot to do. And maybe if they uh, were able to find gainful employment uh, that uh, we wouldn't be hearing as much of this guff. Uh, it's interesting as well, Lucky. I'm not sure if uh, you've heard about some of uh, the situations locally here because we've seen these protests and they've been venomous protests in East Wall and in Ballymon, I think in Killarney. Yeah in other parts of uh, the country. 
Yeah. Yeah. And other places, no doubt. And we will be seeing more, I'm sure, over time uh, because uh, there seems to be uh, some audience uh, for these arguments, but not in County Louth, it seems. Uh, a group of men uh, are in Clara Head. Uh, there were some concerns, a lot of questions. Uh, the far right got on the internet and tried to stoke it up, but it didn't work. Uh, similar situation happening now at the Triple House in Terman Fecken. Uh, most people in that village very tolerant uh, and happy to accept the 50 or so men who've arrived uh, into Terman Fecken. Uh, but uh, at the same time, they do have questions and they have legitimate questions uh, and they want it all to work well. Uh, in Drogheda, there's uh, quite a, a few Ukrainians and the far right were on the internet and they're all coming up to Drogheda to protest about it over the weekend. I, I don't know if you heard anything about that, but a few headbangers turned up in Drogheda basically uh, to complain about refugees. But they were met by a, a counter protest, a group of predominantly young people who told them where to go. Uh, and maybe you'd like to hear uh, some of the counter protests. Let's take a listen to this, Lucky, now, if we can. Racist scum off our streets was uh, the message uh, for the far right when they arrived in uh, Drogheda on Saturday. And I I hope that uh, goes out as a a message to anybody uh, who's concerned about uh, the... Uh, opinion of the general population. It is not in line uh, with these racist, fascist people who are stirring up all of this. I, I hope you agree as well, Lucky, for that matter. No, very much 100% agree with that. And uh, I would really advocate and uh, call for for more of, of the local support to stand up and, and protect this country and protect the people and, 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 and mm. leave a, a positive message of hope humanity and love yeah. to people that are coming here. That is what the message should be. Mm. Uh, hate cannot fight hate. Hate, we can fight hate with love. And and, 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 and to think as well, if you know you see a protest somewhere, ask yourself, where are those people coming from? Because they're the usual suspects travelling from these yeah. far-right parties to parts yeah. of the country that uh, they never heard of before. And it's the same yeah. with some of these Facebook pages. You see Facebook pages, uh, and there's a thousand members, but half of them aren't from the area. Oh, yes, of course. In Ballymoon, what were they, they're dropping people, the three buses that would come there uh, to at one go, and then drop people there and buses go and then pick them up uh, when they've done their thing. So, we, we, I mean, the, the locals will know that the people that they've never seen there before and uh, are, are not from there. Uh, and uh, what surprised me as well, when because I was there on Sunday, was the, the, the number of, of, of small 12-year, uh, 13-year-old kids yeah, dreadful. that were there. Yeah, dreadful. They taught hate it's it's what kind of society are we bringing for the future of this country when we're going to teach children to hate other people we are fighting for equality we are fighting for 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 for, for, for everybody to 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 know that we can all live together in one unity in one place in one country that is what we should be teaching these kids to go to school and learn instead of going in streets and and and, and chant Take slogans. Lucky, thank you indeed for talking to me this morning. Thank you so much. Lucky Kambula is the co-founder of the movement of asylum seekers in Ireland, also known as Massey. 
Interesting comment in from somebody who wants to know when the far right is going to have its say on this show. I'm afraid to tell you the far right is never going to have its say on this show. And there's a very good reason for that. Uh, We're uh, in uh, the radio industry. Uh, We have to build an audience. Uh, We want to get as many people listening to us as possible. And the vast majority of decent people thinking thinking people don't want to hear that fascist nonsense here or elsewhere. Uh, And indeed, there's laws against inciting hatred. Uh, those laws don't apply to the internet, which is why those fellows can get away with all of uh, the stuff uh, that uh, they're stoking on the internet. Uh, it's gaining some traction with a small amount of people, but there is a serious health warning with what you're hearing on the internet uh, from some of these groups who are opposed to people coming into this country seeking international protection. Now, let's talk a- about the cost of living, because as you know, the price of everything is going in just one direction, except that is for the price of childcare. Let's hear a little bit more about this. Minister of State at the Department of Housing, Kieran O'Donnell, is on the line with us. And a, a very good morning to you, uh, Minister, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. Parents should have seen a, a significant discount uh, from uh, the beginning of uh, this year. Correct, uh, and uh, thanks for having me on, Michael. Um, the, in the Minister Roger Gormont, uh, from the 2nd of January, uh, parents should, should have already begun to see reductions, uh, really across two areas. Firstly, in terms of the universal payments, which is given regardless of your means, it's universal payment, that amount is going up from 50 cents per week paid to the provider up to one euro 40. That's almost a threefold increase. And then you will see in terms of people that are, um, that are income means tested, they should see uh, a reduction as well because there's a change in the way the scheme is being operated. And uh, I would very much uh, encourage parents to ensure that they're getting these reductions. Uh, it's a scheme that has been agreed with the service providers and we'd be expecting is a 25% reduction on average mm. for uh, parents and I think you could see probably in certain cases up to 1,200 euro a year in terms of savings for an individual child. Yeah, which is a, a significant uh, amount of money. Uh, parents uh, should have been notified of this already, should they? Or is there something that they should be doing to make sure that uh, they get the savings that they're entitled to? No, they should have been notified. But, but furthermore, their service provider, when they, when they obviously they pay their service provider, they, they should see... Uh, certainly anyone who's on the, the universal payment, which is the you know the normal payment, they should see uh, a reduction. Like, in essence, you're t- seeing a 90 cent, 90 cent increase uh, per hour for what they're being paid for their child in a crash. And that should see, you know, they should already begin to see the, the inc- uh, decreases in the cost because we're very much obviously aware of the cost for people in terms of childcare. It's hugely important. And this government is very committed to uh, reducing it. This has very much been the first phase. Uh, the government are looking to do further further uh, reductions in, in the years ahead as well. Okay, and these reductions are per child, aren't they, Minister? Because they are, uh, they a are lot of people will have two or three children in childcare. Absolutely. So you could, you know, you could see. We, we'd estimate that, and the way the scheme operates, Michael, is you're probably aware that you can get up to 45 hours in this universal scheme, as as well as the the income-based scheme, uh, or it ranges between 20 hours and 45 hours per week. Um, we, we we're looking at on average probably about 25% reduction. We're looking at 
up to possibly 1,200 euro a year saving per child. And if someone had maybe two children in the class, we, we'd estimate that they would be making a saving of maybe 400 euro a month, which is, you know, it's that would certainly make a big difference to people in terms of, of their daily cost of living. And, and certainly we in Fine Gael, we, are, we really are determined that we put money back in people's pockets. And one of the key focuses on cutting childcare and really over the last year, We've doing internal policy review groups. We've a, a care of childcare policy review group internally, where we made submissions last year to Minister Roderick O'Gorman in terms of informing government policy. And one of those is we want to see the reduction in childcare. And really, that it's now happening and it should be happening on the ground for parents is something that we were very conscious of, and we very we very much look forward to, to further increases down the road coming as well. You and Fine Gael then must be very happy to be in government uh, with uh, the Green Party because I think the Green Party will argue that it's the Green Party that has been pushing this, has it not? I would say, uh, Michael, it's a collective effort, but we obviously, we, you have three parties in government, we all have our, our distinct identities. It's something that we, and parties will always work on their own policy, and certainly we have specifically set up a structure in the party where we've, we've set up policy labs which are drawing from across the spectrum, not just politicians. We would then go out and uh, engage with, with all stakeholders, parents uh, across the, the, the range to inform our policy. And that, I think that's what government mm. is about. And it's something that obviously uh, we have a coalition government, we are feeding into it. And certainly for us as a party, and no doubt for the Greens as well, child care is front and centre. OK, I think the Green Party, though, will claim credit for this going into the next general election and claim credit for it. Uh, will you be correcting them? <laughs> no, I won't. But <laughs> certainly I would say, uh, Michael, that our, uh, our own party, uh, and it's something that uh, we'll, we, we want to inform government policy, and that's with all my colleagues. Uh, my Oroctus colleagues and, and councillors up and down the interpret of Ireland that we want to inform uh, the decisions that are taken by government and it's something that, you know, decisions as cabinet are taken collectively uh, but I suppose um, both as a, a minister and also as a member of Fine Gael I know how important childcare is and this is something that should make a real difference to, to uh, parents' lives in terms of cost and really, I think the, the most important thing is if they have any queries at all, uh, they can go up on there's a, the National Child Care Services website, mm-hmm. which is ncs.gov.ie, and they'll get all the details they need. Equally, if they wish, there's a parent support helpline, which is 01906-8530. That's again 01906-8530, um, where they can ask the questions. But really what I want is the parents is mm-hmm. that that childcare costs should be coming down Absolutely. as we speak. Yeah. And there's a calculator there, I believe, on ncs.gov.ie. Uh, and it is very welcome news. I, I know, Minister, for any parent who has uh, children in childcare, uh, and some would say long overdue, but uh, very happy that uh, finally there's been a reduction in fees. Yeah. Th- thank you indeed for joining yeah. us uh, this morning. Thank much appreciated. Much, That's uh, Minister of State at the Department of Housing, Kieran O'Donnell. Let me bring you some of the comments coming to us uh, this morning. Eamon No Party says, Michael, I'm neither right or left, but I say things as I see them. I, I must say, uh, if you take waiting lists to see consultants, 
Uh, people are, are having to wait an average of two years. Now we've around 70,000 people from Ukraine and I suppose they go on the waiting list as well uh, along with everyone else and all of the asylum seekers. O- ordinary people I speak to are, are not happy about this. If we had a good health service and no waiting list, I think most Irish people would not mind uh, and that's just the health issues uh, let alone uh, before you get into anything else. They're valid points, Eamon, uh, and uh, we take them on board. Uh, somebody else says people should watch the TV programme Walk In. Uh, this programme shows how disturbed the far right are. They hate everyone except themselves. Thank you indeed uh, for that. Uh, we've Eamon Indonlear then saying, Good morning, Michael. I-, I have four acres of land. I'm not using it. And I'm wondering if I contacted the government to put 10 small log cabins on site for the homeless or refugees. What would the government's answer to that be? I have a funny feeling the answer would be no. I'm only trying to help. I don't know, Eamon, but uh, maybe we can put a a call in about that uh, or if uh, people have property uh, to offer, uh, maybe we can uh, make those uh, offers known to the local authorities who are looking to hear from people like yourself at the moment. I don't know the answer. Uh, Somebody else says, I I may not agree with the far right. I don't agree with the far right, uh, but your choice not to let them speak on the programme is biased. It's not biased. It's just the law. You can't have people inciting hatred on the radio. It's just, that's the law. That's that's what we have democratically decided in this country. We don't want fascists uh, or we don't want to give oxygen to fascists in this country, which is why there's laws like that in place. That's not a decision I'm making. It's a decision that's been made for me, one I agree with, but it's not a decision I've been making. Thank you if you've been in touch. If you've not been in touch, our telephone number is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658 or email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, you remember the Sultans of Ping song, Where Is Me Jumper? Well, take a step back before you even have the woolly jumper. I imagine somebody is saying, Where Is Me Sheep? Let's speak to Mary Claire, who's in Dunsany, and you may have the answer for us. You have a lot of sheep on your land. You don't know where they came from, Mary Claire. Yes, well, quite a number of sheep this morning, Michael, on, on uh, in my garden. So um, I think there's about 36 um, and someone else counted over 40. So <laughs> not very good at counting sheep. Um, but if anyone is uh, missing their sheep, um, yeah. I do think that they could be here at Dunsany. You've no idea where they came from? No, no idea. We've put up some messages on the local um, Facebook um, boards and contacted some of the local sheep farmers don't think there's that many around here and that no one has claimed them. So they either came from quite far or maybe I just haven't found the local farmer. And they just arrived yesterday out of the blue as far as you're concerned. Yeah, I was actually in work so I do believe they were on the road and someone kind of got them off the road into my front garden and closed the gate. Your front garden? It's not a field? No. Oh God. They'll destroy the garden, won't they? Uh, yeah, well, look, mm. it's fine. We moved them. Yeah. We've a side garden. It's a bit more closed off, so they're in that now for the moment. But it's not, uh, it's not suitable for fifty sheep, and I don't <laughs> have. It, <laughs> it doesn't sound ideal. Far from it. And you run to the guards as well, so they're looking out for the farmer as well. Yeah, yeah, the guards are aware, but obviously they wouldn't have the kind of the even the place to put 50 sheep so they said to leave them there and try and I think they're hoping that it's someone locally and that they would come forward today 
Um, but um, yeah, it's probably it's you know it was, happened around yesterday about four or five, so it's been they've been here for quite some time, and no one has come forward. So I'm hoping. Someone's going to go out herding this morning and notice they're missing. I'm sure they will. It'll be quite a valuable uh, amount of sheep as well. 30 to 50 sheep in around that amount. Uh, yeah. uh, and uh, uh, you want to give them back to the rightful owner. It's a bizarrety. Yeah, <laughs> All right, Mary Claire, if we hear from the farmer, we will uh, put them in touch with you. Uh, uh, although I'm sure they'll find you easily enough and insaney. Thank you indeed. Uh, it's the it's the garden with the sheep in it, if you're in that area. <laughs> Appreciate it, Michael. Have a lovely day. You too. Thank you very much indeed. Now, uh, as you've been hearing, uh, the Irish Water has uh, been called on to give representatives from Loud County Council a chance to, fee- to visit the tr- water treatment plant in Cavan Hill. Let's hear a little bit more about this. Sinn Féin Councillor Kevin Meenan is on the line. Uh, obviously, there's been huge problems in Dundalk with uh, the water over the last couple of years. Are you hoping to get to the bottom of that? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, yes, we are. Uh, but, uh, but I can't say that we will, but but we are hope, we are hopeful. Uh, both myself and Councillor Sean Kelly uh, had spoke about this prior to Christmas, and we it, it's been a topic of our, of uh, many discussions at the uh, Dundalk Town Council, or the Dundalk District Council, and also Loud County Council for the last two years. Mm. Uh, and we've had various different uh, explanations as to why and to when it's going to stop, and it hasn't stopped. And uh, to keep it simple, we're just looking for answers in terms of there's no current plan even going forward as to when it's going to. Uh, resolve itself. Uh, we, we looked at. The, we have asked them to come into the county council. That was rejected, and we're now looking for to go out, to go to go out there and to discuss the from the start the timeline of events, what happened, and 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 maybe they're maybe they're more wiser after the fact now and, be, and are able to give a, a proper explanation as to what has happened and going forward what mm. we can tell people. We, we were getting these. Uh, uh, Messages at, at the very start, and I had actually put some up on social media, like other councillors, and uh, the very, very detailed explanations as well. I think, in fairness, they, they were, and, yeah. and, mm. but but and and, was, and we were given time timelines then that it would be resolved. I think, say for example, at the very start, we were told it'd be resolved within like six months, and and it hasn't, and and it sporadically pops up across town uh, at various times and uh, on various different locations. What is it that you're worried about? Is it the colour of the water? Because they say the water is safe for consu- uh, consuming, don't they? Yeah, they say that. But to look at it, you wouldn't drink it. I, I stopped drinking the water. I, I buy bottled water. But the other thing is too, a lot of other people have said the same thing when they come into our office. They, they, they buy water, they don't drink it. So like, in this day and age, that shouldn't happen. We should have faith in your, your, your public water system. You should be able to feel free to drink it. Uh, it may taste slightly different than other waters, but when you look at a, 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 a pint of water and it looks like more like a pint of harp, it's very hard to sit and say that's mm. safe to drink. You, you, you just say, I'll, I'll skip and, 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 and you'll go to the, the bottled water. Uh, and people have had washing. I can understand that, it, but at the same time, you'd, you'd have to assume that it is safe. Uh, I mean, there's a, a liability yeah. and a public care issue there, um, duty of care that Irish Water would have in giving that advice to people that it, it is safe to drink it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not saying I'm, saying, I'm not saying this. Yeah. I'm not saying yeah. that it's not safe. I just find, and lots of people, when you when you pour it and you say it, you say I'm not drinking that. So it, it, it just doesn't look good. And uh, in this day and age, I, I feel that we should have. A proper water water system. I think we should have uh, 
and, and, and at this point as well, probably better explanations. I don't see why they couldn't have come into the county council when we requested them to come in before to and discuss this. Do you, do you think you'd discover anything at Cavan Hill? Uh, because I thought the uh, problem was between Cavan Hill and your tap. So I, I believe it to be from Cavan Hill. And, and I think if we start from the, from the source and we walk from there and we talk it through with the officials, this is what I'd like to see is bring it back to there. And for them to explain then how the water system works, Joe, and, and to go through all that. Now, I'm not saying they'll, they'll do this, and hopefully they will. They probably won't, but hopefully they will, that we can, that we can, that we can, we can have a, a clear understanding as to where the issues arose from. So we, what, and, and what the current plan is in terms of resolving this. Mm. Say we were told before it's going to be resolved in various times and locations. It would be, it would be stopped by. And they've done an awful lot of work, haven't they? I mean, in fairness, they've been flushing out pipes uh, just over the last what is it, two years? You said. Yeah, they have, yeah, that, yeah, and they have been doing that, and 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 that's fine. And I would accept if they came and said it's still under uh, investigation. I would accept that. Come out and say that. But to, to keep saying that, yeah, it's been resolved and we haven't, and that clearly has been resolved, and, and it pops up. And I, I've had numerous conversations with some of the staff on the phone who I find to be very, very helpful. But they're the frontline staff. They're not the ones who are, they're, they're just being told, they're the, the people who are relaying the message to ourselves, and they're very nice at doing that. And when you ring them, they're, they're quite easy to deal with. But uh, it doesn't resolve the issue, and it's not their fault, because they're only, they're only be given the line to, to tell us in terms of, of what to do. And, and we had been putting putting these messages up and other councillors had been doing the same in terms mm. of putting them up on social media. And uh, as I say, that then, you, then you're starting to get a backlash from the public itself because it's not resolving. So right. I, I, I have no confidence in doing that, putting up something that I know will probably not be the correct answer going by the line or the train of events that we've had for the last two years. And do you think there's something that they're not telling you? Possibly. Who knows? In this NH, it's not on... It's not uncommon to 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 discover these things that and, and and I I'm I'm if they had come out and said look Joe we got it wrong and but uh, nobody ever seems to in this country come out and say no we got it wrong and it was actually this or we and uh, we, we we were not sure what it was and or anything like that other than to say it's been resolved it'll be done and it'll be fine in the next three months and it's not been done or and and they are not sure themselves but. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard to know if if there is an untoward. I couldn't say that, but I would just say myself personally. I don't have confidence in Irish Water as it stands currently at the moment, and uh, I wouldn't be putting up any of their messages that they sent to myself to relate to the public okay. as it currently stands. But as I say, I, I would. I'm open to persuasion in terms of going out there and talking to them to see. And uh, but when when they when they refuse to come to the county council meeting to to talk to councillors. That doesn't send out a good good message mm. to the public. Okay, and uh, I take it people are, are fed up with the colour of the water, if nothing else, even if they're told it's safe, uh, they want clear drinking water and not something that looks like a, a pint of harpa, as you put it there a few minutes ago, Kevin. All right. Yeah. Oh, sorry, just one more. Just yeah. a few relatives coming over here from America, from where else, and you pour them a glass of water in your house. And you say, don't worry, it's fine to drink. You belt away there. <laughs> yeah. I think they'd be looking at you. I'm sure that's when the conspiracy theories would start working. Yeah, yeah. All right, Kevin, we leave it there for the moment. Uh, I'm sure we'll hear from Irish Water, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, for the moment. We'll come back to that. That's Sinn Féin Councillor on Louth County Council, Kevin Meenan. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. There's an awful lot of pressure on health services, as you know, and now there is a shortage of blood. The Irish Blood Transfusion Board is appealing to people to donate blood. Let's hear from Stephen Cousins, who's National Donor Services Manager with the Irish Blood Transfusion Board. Good morning to you, Stephen, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. How low are stocks? Um, yeah, they're, they're pretty low. So at the moment, we're just over four days for all blood groups. Um, whereas, you know, we tend to have a target of wanting to be around the seven day mark. Um, but even that doesn't tell the full story because, you know, that, that's an average across all the blood groups. But there's specific blood groups where we're particularly low. Um, so O negative, we're at 2.9 days and B negative at 2.7 days. And even A positive, which is by quarter population, we're at just over three days there as well. And so I take is, it your appeal is in particular to those who have uh, the rarer blood types. It, it is, um, you know, A positive at three days, that says quarter population, and even O positive, which is nearly half the population, that's at just under five days. Um, so, you know, they're, they're, they're uncomfortable positions to be in. Um, and it's particularly matched by the kind of two factors that are really affecting us. Um, firstly, in, in terms of collecting blood, we're coming across so much sickness in the community and we have been doing for the last four weeks or so and it's only increasing. So, you know, when when you think about it, we go to uh, areas, we, we have a panel of donors we call to those um, clinics. We're seeing a lot of sickness within the um, the panels, so donors can't make appointments. And even donors that do make appointments, in the few days between making the appointment and the clinic starting, we're getting a lot of cancellations. So that means that there's less donors available to us. But then the other side of it is, and kind of a little bit remarkably is, you know, given the problems in the the health service, we're seeing very high issues to the hospitals at the moment. So the hospitals are still very, very busy. So um, in the weeks before Christmas, uh, we were looking at nearly, you know, 9% increase on um, the the demand from the hospitals compared to pre-COVID. And even last week, um, it was up nearly 13% um, on pre-COVID levels. So there's a lot going on in the hospitals, despite all the challenges they're facing, which is very much to their credit. Um, but it puts a challenge on us, particularly when we're seeing that um, the, the, the clinics aren't performing it as well as we'd like. Hmm. OK, uh, so your appeal then is uh, for people to donate blood. Uh, and uh, there's quite a few locations uh, that they can do that uh, at over the course of uh, the next week. Maybe you want to talk us through them. Yeah, the, the, like the Northeast is really important to us in the next few weeks, actually. Um, so tomorrow night we're in um, Dulik. Uh, so we're in the, uh, the Leak Boys National School there. Um, but then uh, we've put on an extra clinic this weekend, um, a Sunday clinic for uh, Dunleer area as well. Um, so that's going to be an important clinic. And then we've got, um, over the course of the two weeks after that, we've eight clinics in Drogheda. Um, so you can imagine eight clinics in the context of all the clinics that we can run. Um, that, that's a lot. So Drogheda is going to be really important just over the, the two weeks. And even by the end of the month, we've two days in trim as well. So you can see that there's a lot of clinics, which um, is not necessarily the case because typically we only go to an area every uh, 90 days because donors can only give blood every 90 days. But as it works out, um, the Northeast is going to be vitally important for us in this next um, four weeks at a time when, as I say, the, the blood supply is low and there's a lot of challenges there, so it could even get lower unless we um, make sure that those clinics run really well for us. Yeah, and would people give blood that frequently every 90 days? Oh, there's some donors are um, waiting at the door. They, 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 um, you know, they, they, I suppose one of the things is when you when you start giving blood and you get into the habit of it, it becomes part of your routine, something that you do. And you know, it's obviously a very, very positive thing that people feel 
um, that indicate blood that they're very much saving lives, which is which is very much the case. So you do get donors who are waiting those ninety days and looking for the next clinic. Um, and you know, particularly where we're in large urban areas, we do tend to be able to get back the ninety days. Maybe kind of smaller rural areas we don't get as often as that. It might be once every four months or so we go there. And um, so you would have donors that absolutely are looking to when when can they get blood next. Um, particularly when they're in the habit. So, yeah, it, it, there is that side of it. For a lot of people then, you know, where they're maybe not in the habit and particularly donors that maybe only started giving and that, uh, maybe they've given a few times, um, it, it's probably something more likely that they'll give once or twice a year, which is very important for us. Um, like when you consider overall the donations we collect um, over the course of the year, the, the average donations per donor is 1.6. So there's obviously a lot of donors who maybe only give once a year and there's a lot of donors who are given two, three times a year. Okay, and I take it it's uh, the type of people who have made it a vocation for themselves or who are giving it every 90 days or so who make up these panels. Uh, you said you're getting cancellations. Is that because uh, people have COVID or, or other illnesses? If you have COVID, uh, can you give blood? Uh, no, not if you have COVID. So we do say that you need to be recovered for, um, I think, 72 hours after you've had COVID and you've no kind of um, symptoms. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Point. And um, but it's not just COVID. So mm. if, if you're feeling unwell in any way, we, we do um, say you know don't go back until you're feeling well. And that's something very important because that can actually be quite frustrating for people um, that you know they want to get blood. They're not they're, they're feeling a bit unwell, but not too bad. Um, and they say no, I'm, I'm fine. I can go and get blood. But the problem is, is, it's not about the donor in that case. It's about the patient. And you know if the patient's immune system is, is really you know poorly suppressed, as likely to be if you require blood then, you know, something like a small virus in a donor actually could be very, very dangerous for the patient. That's why we, we do try and um, ensure that people are feeling well. And it's why we have such kind of, you know, we have a lot of criteria um, and rules around being, get, being able to give blood. And unfortunately, yeah. that means that there's a lot of people can't give blood. But it is very, you know, 99% of that is about protecting the patient. I'm sure. Uh, and indeed, the donor, because it can be dangerous sometimes, can it not for some people to donate blood? Um, yeah, it's, it's you know, there's, there's an element of it. It's, fairly rare in terms of um, you know what problems there are for donors um, but there are things like you know uh, 
obviously we're taking blood from people so we want to kind of regulate how often we do that and that can be different for some donors and so you know there's uh, we do have to generalize in some cases so um maybe uh female donors uh, younger female donors that we, we certainly take less blood from them depending on their size as well um so you get that kind of thing or maybe you know one of the issues we 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 face as well is someone who's given blood um a few times and then maybe they're deferred um, for whatever reason, uh, it could be you know just on the night of the clinic, or uh, again in the case of female donors, it could be that they've um, gone through a pregnancy, so you can't get blood for um, up to twelve months after pregnancy. And what happens actually in that case is people get out of the habit of getting blood. So it's important that we get those um, people back when they're able to get blood mm. again. That uh, they do come back because this habit thing is is really really important. Um, and you know it, it, it's. It, it's it's January and people have New Year's resolutions and it's hard to think about any habit that would be better than getting into habit of getting blood. Okay, somebody asking about platelets. Uh, is that a question for you, platelets donations? Yes, yeah, so we do platelets as well. So um, we so platelets is quite a different uh, type of um, collection process. So we actually have six centres for platelets and the, the main six centre would be in Dublin. Um, so anybody in the northeast, and uh, they'd have to come up to um, our clinic in St James's. Uh, there's different rules in terms of um, criteria for platelets, and particularly age being being part of it. But absolutely, um, you know, you can see on our website giveblood.e uh, the information about um, uh, giving platelets. And again, we we go through that. We do an assessment with um, any donor because, um, particularly looking at uh, donors' veins, is, is kind of an important part of that as well. But uh, we do obviously need um, platelet donors as well. And one of, one of the things about platelets, actually, um, you know, when I talk about blood, the blood can last up to thirty five days. Um, so when we collect that we have that blood available for those 35 days, albeit it's more often used within um, seven days, particularly when the hospital demand is so high. Platelets is a different thing um, in that platelets must be used between five and seven days from collection. So you can imagine that, um, you know, it, when we come into challenging periods like Christmas, bank holidays, um, that uh, we need to collect uh, fairly close to the time we're delivering to the hospitals. So there's a very short time frame. So it's really important that we have platelet donors available in the blood groups we need at a time we need so that we can meet the hospital demand. I know as well uh, that uh, people can check to see if uh, they can donate uh, online uh, if they're eligible on giveblood.ie but there's been a a lot of restrictions in place. Uh, There was a restriction uh, on people who lived in the UK in the 1980s because of mad cow disease. Is that still in place? No, that's gone. That's gone thankfully a couple of years now at this stage. Um, So it. Part of it is that when, when criteria is brought in, and particularly when there's um, things we don't know about, um, and that's what was the case was with um, BSE, uh, you know, you kind of stand back and kind of go, well, how long can this stay um, as a virus within people's bloodstreams? And it was it was reckoned that was around 30 years. Um, this going back quite some time on it. That's kind of a lapse. They've, they've kind of they've had a lot of experience of knowing what's happening with um, you know does the virus pass on, um, and the far, you know the consultants are far more confident in terms of where they can stand on that. So we were able to lift that deferral. So so that's gone completely in terms of um, you know it used to be the people that had lived in the UK for more than a year, um, and you know and you know that would have affected particularly Northern Ireland donors, mm. people in the border areas, and um, so you know t- thankfully that is gone now. So it's something that we do want um, people that. Where uh, from those areas to look at, obviously check other criteria that they're able to get blood, 
but uh, that's not a reason anymore that they uh, wouldn't be able to. Okay, well, we hope if people can give blood that they will give blood because the supply is so short at the moment, uh, down to a couple of days in some circumstances. And they can give blood in Dulict and Lear, in Drogheda and Trim, uh, as you say, and they can check to see if they're eligible on giveblood.ie. In other words, if you'll accept their blood. Uh, but some other questions coming to us, uh, if you don't mind, Stephen. Somebody wondering uh, if they can donate blood if they're a diabetic. Um, I'm not sure. It kind of comes down to the individual um, case. Uh, probably the best thing is uh, on our um, website, giveblood.ie, there's, there's kind of the quiz that people take and it covers kind of the, the, the main reasons. Um, but there's kind of a frequently asked questions bit that goes into more detail. And if that doesn't, because what will happen is we'll kind of ask a little bit around um, the type of treatments people are taking for um, diabetes in that case. Um, if that doesn't answer the question, what it would say is always ring us, um, you know, one eight hundred two 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 one one one, and we can talk through the um, the details of that individual case with okay. that um, potential donor. Is your weight an issue? John Andrade wants to know. It is. Um, it's it's more around uh, if you're um, on the weight, um, particularly for female donors. Um, I think uh, in terms of uh, maximum weight, I think it might be 25 stone, uh, I think, is the maximum weight that we um, can take. And it, it's more to do with, um, well, it's to do a little bit around donor health and um, the, uh, the equipment we use as well. So there is, weight is an issue, um, mm. particularly as female donors, where they're underweight. I think all these questions are, are great because I, I think it could be a sign of how interested people are uh, and how much they'd like to give blood. Somebody else wants to know if it's true that you can't donate blood if you've had a blood transfusion. It is. The, um, it does go back to, uh, in particular, around um, BSE. Um, so when people would receive blood, that could have been affected by BSE. So if you think about over that 30-year period, um it, it, now that's not to make people worry about it. it, it I'm not suggesting that that someone who's received blood is, is in uh, you know some level of peril, but it is kind of a, ca- a level of caution on our part um, that would have uh, affected that because obviously if you've received blood from someone else, that's then in your bloodstream and it's it's something that maybe you can pass on to someone else if there was something there. And um, so uh, unfortunately, people who have received blood transfusions. I think there might be a couple of um, exceptions to that, but not not very many. And again, to be more details on the website, but uh, generally, people who receive blood transfusions can't. Somebody else wants to know, Stephen, uh, if you can give blood if you have tattoos. That's a big one for younger people that we do get asked that. There is um, a four-month deferral period for um, if you've had um, body piercing tattoo um, and things like some levels of acupuncture as well, that kind of stuff can link it to that. So it's got to do with the needles. But it is only four months. Um, so uh, we, we do actually hear that quite a bit from young people kind of go, no, I can't get, they've heard this thing about tattoos and maybe in some countries that is more relevant, mm. um, but it is only four months for us. Somebody else saying they have hemochromatosis uh, and they give a, a pint of blood on a regular basis uh, and it's shame that it has to be binned because it's full of iron. I'm not sure if you want to comment on that, but somebody else asking if... Well, that, that's actually, Michael, that's quite an interesting one because right. um, okay. until a number of years ago, we couldn't take blood from people with hemochromatosis. Um, we did a lot of work with the hospitals on that and there are um, quite a number of people now with hemochromatosis who can give blood. Now, there are restrictions. There's restrictions in terms of the person's health and um, where they are in terms of the treatment program for hemochromatosis with their own consultants. Um, but if they're in the maintenance phase um, and they're able to, uh, and there's, a, there's an age criteria thing there as well, um, but if they are in the maintenance phase, um, then they're able to give blood up to four times a year with us. And it might be that they need to um, have a penis section with their consultant more than that. Again, okay. depending on what their own requirements. Because that was right that mm. we used to have to 
um, or we didn't do it, but the hospitals would have discarded blood from the hemochromatose patients. But now there are quite a number of circumstances where we can connect it and use that blood very safely. Very interesting. I think our, our listener uh, will be very happy to hear that. Uh, we might have to get you your own slot on the station at some time, Stephen. Uh, somebody else asking about jaundice. Uh, yes, um, uh, if I put up my own slot, I'll have to get more uh, up to date on what the rules are. <laughs> okay. um, I think jaundice is, um, again, it was one that mm. uh, it used to be if you had jaundice, you couldn't give. Um, there is a, a criteria now. I think if you had childhood jaundice, you can give. Um, and then if you're over, I think it may be 13 or 14, you can't um you can't so uh, but I could be a little bit wrong on that one what I would say is definitely go to the website and look up jaundice as part of the, the frequently asked questions because there, there is a, um, a change yeah. to that one okay and that's giveblood.ie and you get the answer to all of these questions there uh, just before you conclude sexual activity is obviously uh, an important part in deciding whether people can donate blood or, or not uh, and when you go to donate blood now you'll be asked questions about your sexual activity yeah, it's, it's like it's a very positive change we made only in the last couple of months. Um, so for a long time, uh, when it came to sexual activity, uh, we had to base our criteria based on group, um, kind of categorising people in groups. Um, not an ideal situation to be in, but it was all to come back to um, risk assessment. Um, to get away from that, the, the way you had to go then is ask all donors the same question. So you're looking at people from an individual basis. Now that means that um, we were a little bit concerned because we were thinking, you know, some donors might feel uneasy about some of the questions we do, we do ask because they are quite intimate questions. Um, we haven't experienced that at all. Like donors recognise why we're asking this and, and the benefits of it. But it means that we're asking all donors the same questions. But that means then the people that were previously um, deferred or um, because of their um, being part of a certain group, um, particularly gay men would be would part of that. Um, they now are just being judged on the individual basis across all the, the questions that we ask, which is, which is a brilliant positive. OK, and you'll be set up in the schools in Dulik and in Dunleer in uh, the Tommy Leddy Theatre, I think, in Drogheda, isn't it? Uh, and you said you're in Trim as well? Yeah, the Knightsbrook Hotel the in Trim Hotel. Hotel. Great. OK, Stephen, thank you indeed. Uh, I'm sure people have heard your appeal loud and clear uh, and uh, we'll have to make it a weekly stop by the sounds of things because people are so interested, which really is very, very positive. Stephen, thank you indeed uh, for oh, joining us on the programme this morning. Stephen Cousins is uh, the National Donor Services Manager with uh, the Irish Blood Transfusion Board. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Uh, the Taoiseach, Leo Radker, and uh, the Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien, met uh, with uh, people who are working in uh, the property industry, builders and uh, developers, housing agencies and indeed groups who work with the homeless to ask for ideas on how to speed up the delivery of housing in this country and not surprisingly so with more than 11,500 people now living in emergency accommodation. Let's speak to Mike Allen, Director of Advocacy with Focus Ireland and a very good morning to you Mike and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Tell us a little bit more about this meeting in government buildings yesterday. I'm sure you had a lot to say to the government. Yeah, Focus Island, we're there, along with a range of other homeless organisations and uh, developers and builders and the whole range of people who are concerned with um, delivering uh, housing and, and trying to end the, the housing and homeless crisis, a lot of, long obviously, with local authorities and, and so on. So it's an initiative as, as returning as Taoiseach, uh, Leo Varadka had indicated a number of priorities, um, and one of them is, is tackling housing, and we, we very much welcome welcome that and he essentially pulled together this whole range of different people to, to see where, where we are and uh, to get new ideas. 
and you could approach that, and you see it in, in the newspapers today. A lot of people approaching it with a lot of cynicism that um, uh, you know this is just a, a, a publicity stunt, and so on. And certainly, from our point of view, we would say, look, we haven't been short of coming forward with ideas. Um, what we would be saying is the government hasn't been listening to the solutions we've been putting forward over the last 10 years. Mm. But rather than approach it cynically, we approached it in, in the, the manner we think the invitation came, came out and say this is an opportunity to make the points we want to make again, to, to set it out and, uh, and, and uh, approach this question constructively because we constantly have to do that despite how... Like, from our point of view, what we've seen over the last um, year is every month Homelessness has gone up every time the figures come out each month. Mm. It's for the last five months. It's been new, higher records never before. All our services are under enormous pressure, and what we constantly need to remind ourselves is: is this isn't a natural phenomenon? This people talk about tsunami or other, you know, storms and so on. This isn't a natural phenomenon. This is something that we actually is a, is a result of the policies we've been adopting as a country over the last fifteen years or so, and better policies would solve it. So every opportunity that we can get to put forward our ideas of what would be better policies and greater prioritization of tackling homelessness, okay. and presenting this as a solvable problem, we, we're, we're happy to, to, to do that. And you'd need to be building a, a new town, essentially, something the size of Enniscorthy or Ballina in order to house 11,500 people. Uh, and it, it's that lack of supply that needs to be addressed. Uh, uh, I don't think anybody would expect that you'd be building a new town, but it's building that amount of houses uh, across the country so that homes can become available for people. It's a huge challenge. It is a huge challenge, but we do have to remember that we were building 90,000 homes a year um, just over, you know, during, during the Celtic Tiger period. Um, so we have the capacity to do that, and we have a capacity to do it better than we did during that period of time. So it's not something that's um, uh, never been achieved before. Um, and, we, you know, so, so it's, it's not, not beyond our capacity to, to, to do that. Um, but the problem is, from our point of view, is that the, while successive governments have said they want to be less dependent on the private sector, we are dependent on the private sector still to an inordinate degree. And it's not a criticism of private developers or anything like that, but the private sector does things when there is sufficient profit to do it. That's what it's all about, and that's, that's what it's for. And that's not, again, it's not mm. a criticism of it, that's just the reality. And what we need to be able to do as a country is to build homes when there isn't a profit to be made out of it, because homes are a human right, they're a necessity, they're fundamental to what we are as human beings, but they're also fundamental to the long-term health of our economy and our society. Okay. And that capacity as a country to continue to build, even when there isn't a profit to be made out of it, um, is something that we, we, we've lost over the years and that we need to, 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 to build back. And that requires a type of government investment and leadership which has been lacking for a large number of years and, and we're calling on the government to, to show again. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that everything will be built by the state and that sort of argument is going on. We're not particularly, you know, that, that, that's not an issue for us. The, many of the, build, the builders that we use in focus housing to build our homes that we build as one of the largest crude housing bodies in Ireland. They're all private contractors. They're all private for-profit companies. Mm. But the lead in terms of the decision to build the homes, where the homes are to be built, the quality of the homes, and the investment in homes is all coming from Focus Housing and Focus Ireland to do that. And we think that that model would be a much more effective one than the current 
the speculative model which uh, has dominated our house building for, for so many years and has repeatedly brought us into these. This isn't the first housing crisis we've faced. Um, there is something fundamentally wrong in the way we deliver housing over quite a long period of time that we really need to resolve. What do you make of uh, the proposal uh, that uh, the conference heard from developers, which is grabbing all of uh, the headlines, uh, that they want to be paid up front, essentially that you pay for apartments off plans rather than paying for them after they've been completed? Yeah, so we think that some, we, we've been looking at that issue ourselves and we're running a conference exploring it uh, uh, next month. Um, so there is definitely a, a potential there in the uh, planning permissions which have gone through, particularly around uh, uh, apartment uh, apartment blocks, which are now not financially viable because of increased construction costs and uh, and uh, in- increased interest rates. In other words, they won't be able to make a profit out of them. So we do think there's a real potential there. Whether that potential is best achieved simply by sort of giving more money to private uh, speculators who now look as if they may not make as much money as they thought they were going to do, we're not so sure. Um, there may be other ways in which these, properties, these projects can be taken over by approved housing bodies, like people like ourselves or the larger approved housing bodies, uh, Cluid and, and Respond and so on. So definitely there's, it takes a long time to get from the, through the planning process. So if there is a good piece of planning that's been done and a good uh, project which is ready to go, it would be crazy just to leave it un- unbuilt. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we need to do to jump to the tune of the developers. There may be other ways of achieving that goal, and we really want to explore those possibilities. Do you think um, that the government should learn a, a lesson from the National Children's Hospital in that it committed to building that hospital on St. James's and before you know it, the costs soar and escalate and end up way out of control. And that if you've got private developers now who say, I'll build you an apartment for 100,000 if you give me the 100,000 before I start the work, that eventually when it's built, they could say, oh, well, there were unforeseen costs and it actually costs 200,000. Yeah, I think there's a balance to be struck here. I mean, and there is a sense that the, the, the state has, has not handled these things very well and has been taken for a, a ride by or, or, or made errors which don't end up to be uh, very expensive. On the other hand, if you're too cautious, nothing gets done. And so, and it does cost money to build and there are risks involved in building. So we don't want to become so afraid of, of uh, risk or, or the potential that something might be more expensive that we end up with uh, huge other costs arising. Like, so our failure to deliver housing over the last number of years has meant that there are 11,000 people in, in very, very emer- uh, expensive emergency accommodation. And we've been better to invest money and take some risks earlier. So I find finding that balance. And I mean, I, the debate on housing has, has become one in which um, it's very easy to be cynical. And in return to what I was saying before, very easy to say that, that everything is going to fail. And that actually does, no any, does that nobody any good. We do need to... Uh, 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 take risks. We do need to understand that not everything works out exactly at, at the cost it was, it was expected to. At the same time, we don't want to be taken for fools and we don't want to, to end up sort of putting vast sums of money into, into people's pockets unnecessarily when we could get things at a much more reasonable price. Okay, but we've a crisis, an emergency. It's been uh, the case for over a decade, and uh, I think no matter what way it's approached, people want action and want people Absolutely. to get yeah. keys to front doors of places that they can call their own home. Absolutely. Mike, thank you indeed for joining us as always. Thank Mike Gallen, Director of Advocacy with Focus Ireland. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Members of uh, the Irish Farmers Association met in Limerick yesterday for the IFA's Farming and Climate Summit. Tim Cullinan is uh, the president of uh, the IFA and joins us now. And uh, a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, you told farmers in Limerick yesterday that you're going to do your bit as a, a sector. You're going to reduce emissions so long as it doesn't impact or reduce livelihoods. That's right, Michael. And good morning, Michael. And good morning, good morning to your to listeners you. there as well. And uh, absolutely, yeah. I thought the first thing to say about yesterday, so the, the number of farmers that was there yesterday just shows that you know, obviously farmers are very concerned and want to understand you know, about climate change and you know, what we're going to do or have to do as a sector. And, and you're right, and I've been consistently saying that, like, so it's, this is a very important sector. And just to say as well, just this morning, Borbia have announced our exports of food and drink for the year and there's an increase there of 25% in value uh, from 13 to 16.7 billion. So look, that's important as well. And that's, that's one of the reasons why we want to uh, protect this sector. It's a lot of money and it's a lot of food. And you were making the point that if we don't produce that food, somebody else is going to produce it because there will be the demand for that food. And what will it cost to produce it elsewhere? Absolutely, and from a climate point of view as well, Michael, um, it will be produced in a country that's less carbon efficient than we are. But I suppose just going back to yesterday, I think it was very important. We had all the key stakeholders in the industry in the room. We had um, the Department of Agriculture, we had the EPA who was the enforcer, and I think who, who played a huge role yesterday was the scientists John Chagas in particular, and demonstrating the work that they are doing. And and I think this is very important and clearly demonstrating now that the science is proving that our system, grass-based system, uh, definitely cows that are, are, are grazing grass are producing less methane, working on trials on that. And also the genomic makeup of different cows is showing that we can change the breeding traits of animals that they will produce less methane as well. So you know, all of this work continues and it's important that they are allowed time to conduct those trials, get them peer reviewed. And in fairness, as I say, we had a lady from the EPA there yesterday and will accept that uh, they will be put on the, the national inventory to demonstrate what we're doing. And likewise, on the other side, which is a huge challenge, obviously, is carbon sequestration. So demonstrate our... I suppose finding out the true value of how much carbon is being sequestered into the soils mm. and because currently we're using an international standard and we don't really know. So Chagas as well, they have the signpost farm up and running now where they have a number of flux towers up and down the country which is measuring that carbon and oh, this will bring us a true figure going into the future. So look, there's an awful lot of work going on and um, I believe... That's why, and I suppose the other area yesterday was the minister clearly said that there's going to be no reduction scheme for the sucker herd. And, you know, I think this is important because we can manage to hold on to the the numbers of animals we have in the country working with the science. Okay. Last time I spoke to you, I asked you, would you mind reducing uh, the national herd if farmers were incentivised to diversify? Uh, and go into forestry, for example. 
there's a bit of controversy at the moment uh, about money uh, that is being allocated for forestry through Kielce and Kielce working with uh, a British investment company. That's right, and obviously there's a lot of concern around that, and uh, that subject came up obviously at the conference yesterday as well, Michael. And um, look, my understanding of this was that obviously we know we need to plant more trees, and the government came forward with a package of 1.3 billion for Irish farmers uh, late last year, right? And now, look, it is very worrying to see that Quilcher is aligning themselves up with an investment company and uh, investing funds in, in planting. And the challenge, what's going to happen here with land availability? Because one of the figures that was put up by our own director of policy, Ty Buckley, yesterday was, <clears throat> you know, if we're to, with all the measures that's in the plan at the moment, uh, around climate, we could lose anything up to nine percent of grassland. So, like, if we have, if we have an investment com- company coming in here now and looking to um, amalgamate with Quilcha to buy up land, that is a huge concern for our farmers. All right, uh, and you're talking about a, a, a situation where you'd be losing land, and land is already scarce. Absolutely, absolutely. And going back on what I just said at the start of the interview, where now. We're exporting in excess of 16 billion of produce from Irish farmers to 180 countries right around the world. So mm-hmm. that's a success story. And uh, you know, we look, we are uh, reflecting on on this proposal with Quilcha. A lot of concern around it. And you know, I will be meeting, particularly with our own forestry committee, in the, in the next number of days. And you know, we have to make a decision what we're going to do about that because it is very concerning and very and worrying that, for farmers. And that that money should be uh, made available or offered in the first instance to Irish landowners before we look for outside foreign investors, is it? Absolutely, of course. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, uh, the, my my priority is obviously to look after our own Irish farmers or our members. I think that's very important and so if there's going to be planting here, it needs to be done by Irish farmers quite willing and, and, and capable of doing this. And so we had the row for the last number of years mm. where uh, seeking licences was a massive problem and there was, a, there was a lot of work needed to be done around that. So if the licensing situation is freeing up, well, I'm quite sure we have lots of farmers here in Ireland that's willing to do this job themselves. Okay. Uh, and that may give opportunities, though, uh, if there is to be a reduction in uh, the national herd uh, to farmers in places like Brazil. Uh, and I think you told the conference yesterday that imports of food from Brazil to the EU has increased by 47%. So there could be a further increase on, on that. And going back to what you were saying about how food is produced in places like Brazil or elsewhere. But there's also the economic impact. Uh, you heard from a food economist, Kieran Fitzgerald, uh, who spoke about a 1% reduction in agricultural output and what that would mean to the Irish economy. That's right. Um, Kieran Fitzgerald, uh, an excellent presentation as well, yes. And, he, and, and his presentation clearly states that for every 1% cut in production, it'll cost the Irish economy £250 million. And on the other hand, then, if we have the EU now starting to ramp up uh, imports from Mercosur countries like Brazil, you know, that's, it just doesn't make sense. And uh, like it's a campaign we've been running for years is... So we want um, 
equivalence of standards like and and now we want equivalence of standards from a climate point of view as well i think consumers want that as well and like we're being pushed to the limit to produce produce uh, adhering to a reduction in, in methane emissions which we're working on well we want the same coming from other countries as well because at the end of the day all of this is about uh, reducing global warming and what will happen here if this if this situation was to develop and more imports were to come in, all we're going to do is add to global warming and we won't be contributing to global cooling. So I think this is a very clear point. And I do believe actually the EU Commission now is beginning to realise the importance of, of food security. So particularly on the back of what we've seen in the Ukraine for the last year. And I suppose one example is we have... Uh, a piece of legislation, Sustainable Use Directive, no, it's a directive around plant pesticides and plant protection products that um, they were tr- going for legislation that would reduce the volume used up to 50%. There has been a rethink around that now and the Commission is actually going back and doing an assessment around that before they drive that piece of legislation forward. And also during the Christmas period, during the quiet period, the Commission has commissioned a report around food security as well. So they're beginning to see that, as we've seen with energy in the last year, depending on an outside country, outside of the EU, for your, let it be energy, our food is very risky business. Okay. We're going to leave it there for the moment. Uh, we always appreciate you giving over your time to speak to our listeners and thank you very much indeed for doing so again today and for joining us on the programme. Tim Cullinan is uh, the president of the Irish Farmers Association. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Well, Diageo is uh, to increase uh, the price of its beers by 12 cent from February. Another blow to rural pubs, according to the VFI. Let's speak uh, to its chief executive, Paul Clancy. A very good morning to you, Paul, and thanks for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. This is, is, of course, Guinness, Smithix, Harp uh, and other beers. Yes, indeed. And look, it's, it's kind of most unwelcome news, really, for our members. You know, just about to head into the quietest trading period and we believe it just couldn't come at a worse time. Our members have observed, have already absorbed an enormous amount of costs such as energy and input costs that are well documented and we would ask the adjunct to look if they can absorb more of these cost increases within their own operations before passing on to our members because ultimately if the price of the pint goes up and that is the public's uh, own decision about how much and uh, they put it up by it means that it's making it more unattractive potentially for customers to come in Mm. And uh, with tight and disposable incomes and things like that, really does put that business uh, at risk. And that's our concern, really, as, as a membership organisation. What will it mean for drinkers, uh, for customers? How much more are they going to pay? Uh, it's 12 cent extra that Guinness or Diageo is going to charge you. Uh, but I'm reading it could be much more for drinkers uh, when you add on VAT and duty and the pub's margin. Yeah, I've heard I've heard like between thirty and forty cents now, but I mean that's a really pint. each individual. Yes, absolutely, yeah. By the time you you put you have the VAT on and the excise on your and the margin for the publican, um, you're up in, in around that kind of level there, potentially. Right. Again, that's the, each individual decision for each publican and their own business to make. Mm. Um but look, it is not a situation we wanted to be in, you know, during the quietest period trying to encourage people in. Um, in, into the pub and uh, certainly this is not going to help you know people hard press consumers who are coming in and who are enjoying their point um, during the week or at the weekend mm. 
Yeah, well, uh, I'm sure nobody wants to see prices increase by that amount, not Diageo or anybody else, uh, because if you put up the prices and sell less pints, (laughs) you don't really come out of it well, do you? No, look, you know, ultimately you're trying to encourage people in and with disposable income and being tightened with inflation and all the other things that your listeners are so accustomed to and the pressure that they're under, you know. Uh, our, our our members and our publicans have done an enormous job to try and reduce, um, you know, to try and reduce the amount of pressure they're putting on their consumers coming in by managing their own costs. Mm. In a, and if they were to pass on all the costs that they have uh, experienced, like 300% increase in energy costs and food input costs and things like that, and they have absorbed a vast amount of it, and uh, that's we'd be asking Diageo, can they look deeper into their own organisation to see can they reduce that um, mm. that increase? Well, I'm sure they have their own production costs to think about it as well. I mean, when you look at uh, the ten cent increase on the price of a stamp that on post has announced, uh, twelve cent on a pint doesn't seem that much, uh, relatively in comparison, um, but. Uh, what about the government in this? Uh, because this is going to be good news for the government. If people don't drink less, they're going to get more in VAT on duty, aren't they? Well, they get more because the price will potentially go up and they'll get more VAT on duty. So from a government point of view, that's good. But, you know, in relation to supports from government, and I'm glad you touched on it there, because you know, with the uh, the energy support scheme that's out there uh, currently, I mean, um, that actually covers electricity and natural gas, but doesn't actually cover kerosene or LPG, which the vast majority of our members actually use to heat their commercial premises. So from that point of view, they're only getting 50% potential of the actual support grant that's in place. So the things the government are trying to do are very welcome and very helpful, but unfortunately they're missing a big, big swathe of our uh, of our members, which is uh, which we have, uh, you know, obviously written to the minister about and asked him to reconsider that because potentially if this is ending at the end of February. Mm. And I, I take it though there's no great surprise in the increases. This is just one company and their selection of beers, but they follow on the heels of Heineken. Yeah, and to know the two of them coming together so quickly has been a major blow, really. You know, the one before Christmas and now this one as well. It just puts extra pressure on. And if you took them in their own isolation, you'd say, okay, look, it's bad. It's bad news. But when you add it together with the Heineken one, with the increase in input costs, um, and, you know, the vast majority of our members are are relatively small family-owned businesses, and this would put um, untoward pressure on them, unfortunately. Mm. And uh, we understand, yeah, Joe, need to recover, you know, recover some of their uh, increased costs and we respect that but the size of it and the timing of it we would have an issue with okay. and that's why we're, we're trying to speak to them and see can they can they, uh, can they do anything on that matter. Okay, uh, well I, I take it uh, people can expect to pay more for everything uh, when they go to the bar uh, at this stage, not just beers but uh, if uh, drinks haven't uh, increased uh, that in time they will generally, spirits uh, uh, and so on. Uh, but again, that could be good news for the government. Uh, you mentioned uh, the cost of heating. Uh, is there anything that they can do about VAT and duty? Yeah, well, VAT and duty, I know at the last budget we asked for the duty to reduce the excise duty because it's the one of the highest in Europe and uh, they kept it flat, which we were welcome at. They didn't increase it. But, you know, budget time again, we'll be asking for that to be reduced. And the VAT at 9% for food and accommodation is due to expire at the end of uh, the end of February, and we're going to ask for the government to extend that as well. Again, because we do know that uh, even though the, there has been a bounce back in the economy, that we're not back to where we were pre-2019 levels, and we still need these supports in place if we want to remain a competitive and vital sector, particularly for Tourism Ireland. Okay, well... 
It's a, a challenging time for you. It'll be a challenging time, I think, for many of your customers as well if uh, they're looking at 40 cent on the price of a pint. Uh, and I'm sure nobody wants that. Uh, but uh, we'll see if uh, that's how it prevails uh, come February. Paul, we leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. Paul Clancy is Chief Executive of the VFI. That this, that's the Fintners Federation of Ireland. Let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning. Uh, somebody saying people protesting about unvetted immigrants are not what you call far right. Um who has vetted in this country? Uh, I, I'm just the, the person who sent it in that text. Have you vetted your neighbours? <laughs> have you vetted anybody on your street? Um, it is. It, it's uh, there are people who are protesting against people who are seeking international protection, and you don't know anything about them. And, and you, uh, you're, you're listening to fellas on the internet talking nonsense about that. No, we don't vet people like that. Uh, Porik McCormick in RD says, the problem is that there isn't enough accommodation for refugees. The real problem is that there are too many refugees for the amount of accommodation that is available. Six into three doesn't go, but all this unelected government cares for, uh, cares about is making themselves look good on the international stage. The country is fast becoming a ghetto. I dread to think what it'll be like living here in a few more years. I think it's going to be a great country with uh, all of uh, the influences from all of these countries. Powerick, uh, I think we have an elected government. Uh, I know I went out and voted uh, and I'm very proud of our democracy, by the way. Uh, I think uh, a lot of uh, people listening to us will remember that uh, a lot of people lost their lives fighting for our, our democracy and uh, the very privileged position that we have in this country relative to other countries uh, where we get to vote for our government and then you have to live with the government uh, that you have voted for. Uh, we've uh, somebody else in touch with us uh, saying uh, when there's more people coming into the country every week then it stands to reason that there's nowhere for them to live, only emergency housing. A lot of these people probably don't qualify for a house even if they were available unless the taxpayer pays for it. Thank you for that as well. Paddy Duffy saying that the war in Ukraine kicked off in late February. It was the 24th of February. Before that, we didn't have long waiting lists and we were able to house all our, our citizens. Life was just wonderful. How can we get back to utopia? Paddy is being very cynical and I think he has his tongue planted firmly in his cheek. Thank you indeed, Paddy, for that. We've always had long waiting lists. I think that is the truth of it. That's where we leave you for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.